Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Chris Krager, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Based in Austin, Texas, Chris Krager formed Krager and Associates Design Build, KRDB, a developer design build company in 2001 with the intention of creating financially accessible architecture while focusing on sustainability in the urban environment. And Chris joined us back in episode 354. You may have remembered that name when you saw this episode. Uh, Chris shared us and shared his origin story and how he launched KRDB and and how he's leveraging his skills and strategies as an architect-led development design build company. So if you're interested in the origin story, we're not going to go through that again here. Uh, if you're interested in in learning about how he launched his firm, it's a great episode. You really ought to go back to episode 354. It's an inspiring story, uh, so do that and listen to that as well. Uh, in 2008, KRDB introduced MA Modular, their line of affordable modern modular homes, and that's why I wanted to have Chris come back because we never really got to that in that last episode. We talked about it, I introduced it, and then we never really had much of a a conversation about it. And so I wanted to uh, bring you back, Chris, uh, to have that conversation. So Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, great. Great to be back. Love to um, discuss. Uh, yeah, we didn't, we get, I guess there was a lot of story there. So happy to, happy to get dive in depth into, into uh, MA. So great, great. So uh, 
in 2001, you launched the, the development company. In 2008, you launched MA Modular. Um, and we're hearing a lot about modular construction these days. There's, there's a bunch of companies popping up, and modular's been around for a very long time. Um, but recently, it's becoming much more affordable, a much more uh, uh, accessible way of building. And so I wanted to have that conversation with you here. So let's start with maybe the, the origin story of MA Modular. How did, it, how did that happen, going from KRDB to launching a, a separate modular company? Yeah, and it really was a direct evolution. What happened was um, we had uh, we started getting inquiries from folks in other markets. You know, we 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 were published in Dwell, and so we got some national editorial coverage. And then we started getting phone calls um, because we were very interested in building architect design homes for the price points because that was one of the focuses, one of the of the article was that these guys were designing and building these houses affordably. And so we probably had five or six projects in a variety. We were in Denver, Baton Rouge, Oahu, New Jersey. There was five or six projects where we would go through design. Uh, they would have a local general contractor bid the project and it would come in 25 to 50% over what we knew we could build for here in Austin. And it was really frustrating. And, and I think the bottom line there was that most contractors in these other markets who were comfortable with modern design, modern construction, were, were for the most part dealing in the very high end of the market. You know, the, the, right. those were the only people these folks could get to take a look at these drawings. So uh, we realized that there was this opportunity out there and, and how are we going to take advantage of what was a clear latent demand for uh, good quality modern design at an affordable level. And I hearkened back to my, when I was in undergraduate school, um, in the summers, I worked as a framer um, and in Detroit. And the company I worked for worked almost exclusively on doing like additions and building decks and screen porches on modular homes uh, for a couple of particular companies. And this occurred to me and my dad actually sold some modular homes back in the 80s and so i thought well what the heck i'll 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 call around and i knew that i started doing some research and realized that within a two-hour drive of austin there was like five or six modular uh manufacturers and and i just started calling them cold calling them and seeing if they would be interested in even just talking to me um, and so uh, I finally did. I got one to to um, to agree to take a meeting, and I went in, and we we had already kind of like uh, designed. We had a concept design for how we were going to approach this. Uh, we went in, toured the plant. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to be really uh, cognizant of, um, you know, because as you know, the thing about um, prefab and modular design, this is not it's it's gotten a lot of press in the last 15 years or so but if you are a student of modern architecture you go back 100 years and uh, our colleagues 100 years ago you know buckminster fuller and gropius and you know all, all these guys where uh, almost everybody was taking a, sh a stab uh, at at creating some kind of uh, a prototype for a factory built uh, house. Um, and so 
as as a as a group as the, as an office we said to ourselves well what's the why the failures why is the history of this littered with failures and really almost not a single example of a success at a at a kind of a meaningful level and and i think our takeaway was because there was so much emphasis on first principle and invention and in owning a, a process or you know i mean fuller's dimaxian house is a perfect example that's cool that's great whatever but like there wasn't a pre-existing infrastructure to build that so uh, having worked uh, in the industry i was like okay there's there's already a, a, a network of manufacturers and freight companies and crane companies and set crews that exist in every state across the union. Um, so the idea was to tap into a pre-existing system, a pre-existing network that already existed. So when we went to visit the factory, the thing that was really crucial for me to the, the dialogue I wanted to have with the factory was talk to us about your limitations and your parameters. We want to understand how you guys operate, how you build, what you can do, what you can't do. Um, and you know what, the thing we, we realized is that they were, they were building uh, factory built housing that was technologically no different than site built housing. It was for the most part, stick frame housing that they were just building under a roof sometimes on an assembly line, sometimes not on an assembly line. It depended on how, you know, the level of sophistication of the factory. Um, you know, so we, we found a factory that was, was willing to talk with us and open up a dialogue. And we walked their factory floor and looked at how they build and asked them to give us, you know, parameters and drawings and, and, the, and the way their buildings went together. And then we went back and took our kind of first concept or prototype which in the beginning, what we tried to do was we wanted to balance um, the requirement of design we had with what we knew the factory, uh, what, what made factory uh, uh, construction efficient, which is redundancy and automation. And so um, our first iteration of Mom Modular was this idea that we would design a kit of parts, essentially. So there would be, a, you know, we'd have a, a kitchen, living, dining, kitchen module. And we would have a two bedroom, one bath module. And there was like, I think we had about a dozen different parts. Um, and when we designed those parts, we designed those parts with, uh, so there were two things. There was the design aspect of it, which was, okay, how could this piece be maximally flexible to work in different situations where like, this might be a door, it might be a window in another context. And then the other layer on that was, okay, the factory has limitations. This is how they build. For example, the most basic one is when you uh, uh, ship a module in what we, we, we build, I guess I should take a step back. There's module, module, modular construction is really a spectrum, right? The, uh, a two by four is modular. SIPs panels are modular. And then there's what we do, which we call volumetric modular construction. We ship out a building that is relatively complete in parts, not in not not panelized, but it might be one or two or three boxes that are almost complete on the interior that that come that get put together on a site. When you ship those things, 
they are, um, there are limitations. For example, in most states, you can't be wider than 15 feet, you can't be taller than 15 feet, and the box can't be longer than 65 feet, give or take. I mean, there's like in Texas, of course, because we can do everything be bigger, we can ship <laughs> boxes that are 17 foot 10. Of course, we're the only state in the union where you can ship almost an 18 foot wide box. Uh, so we went back and we designed this kit of parts to conform to our design requirements and then the factory limitations, the shipping limitations, what they do in the factory. And so the first, and then we went back to this manufacturer and we said, okay, you know, does this, does this work? And there was a little bit of back and forth, you know, how, and then we talked about, you know, the way they literally build in the factory, like the, the, the process in the factory, they build buildings kind of inside out where they'll build a floor, they have a floor jig and they'll build a floor framing and then they'll put the interior walls in first and they kind of work from the inside out and then they'll build the ceiling upside down with trusses on another table where, you know, they're putting the sheet rock on first. And, you know, so un, we, we had to kind of understand it. None of it was radically different than site built construction, but there were differences that, you know, were, were important to understand in terms of how we conceived of the buildings coming together. Yeah. Se sequence was different. Sequence was different. And so there was a little bit back and forth and a little iterative process with them on, on, uh, on, you know, how we would conceptually put a building together. And then we came to an agreement and then the first project we did was a spec house. I just, rather than trying to find somebody who'd be my guinea pig, I went out and I bought a lot and we designed, we took and we built a, our first house is a 1500 square foot, three bedroom, two bath. It's called the Luna house on our, our Ma site. Um, and I just thought, okay, I'm going to, we're going to try to work the kinks out of the, uh, out of this process uh, with us as our own guinea pig. And so um, we found this factory in uh, uh, a company called Patriot Homes in Waco, Texas, who agreed to do this, and um, and uh, and we we went uh, we initiated the process, gave them a deposit, they started the engineering, and then about um, a month or two into the process, I got a phone call from the architect at the company telling me that Patriot was going bankrupt and they were going out of business. Huh. Oh boy. So, um, so we're mid project. I own a lot. I've got, uh, drawings we're going to submit to the city. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm unsure what we're going to do thinking, oh, we're going to site build this house. And then a couple of weeks later, he called me and said, um, uh, well, I'm with this other company. We're in, you know, we're up in Indiana. Uh, but you know, we, we would, you know, they're the, it's a small privately owned company. The owner's really interested in this. So they ended up, I ended up building my first spec, uh, my first prototype house in Indiana and shipping 1,600 miles to Austin. <laughs> Was the process any different between the two companies? You know, it, essentially it wasn't. Um, that's the good thing. Like there isn't really a lot of variation. Like I said, the primary variation with these companies is like whether they actually build with an assembly line where they, they literally put the, you know, the, 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 the platform is on a, an assembly line where it's moving, where they may have cranes that move across the buildings, or if they, there, there are some companies that like are essentially building like site built construction, just under a roof. Right. You know, right. So In stations. Super low. Yeah. So the, there wasn't much of a difference between the two companies, fortunately, and we didn't have to make many changes in the design. 
When you were going through the initial process of seeking out a modular company that's that's already doing it with their system um, and sort of finding the right the right company, um, were, was there any sort of pushback from any of those companies with the type of architecture that you've designed with modern architecture? We did that at my firm, I don't know, probably about 12, 15 years ago, uh, considering doing a really small modular house and the modular companies in our area were all building traditional architecture. They didn't really want to do anything that we were doing. Uh, and so it, clearly we didn't find the right person and we didn't really pursue it very hard either. Uh, but did you have any experience with that? Any sort of um, you know pushback from the companies with, with oh, working oh, with you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I would say, you know, if I, if I, uh, like I said, I probably talked to five, six or seven companies and the primary reason uh, that most of them didn't want to talk to me was because it didn't look like what they were building, you know, and these companies, you know, a small uh, modular company is probably rolling five to six buildings a week off of their line. If you slow them down by one building, that's 20% of their profit margin. Mm. So oh, I could I could see how they would not want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they're you know I, I mean if the construction if the industry as a whole is slow to change, which I think we all know it is, the the manufactured aspect of it is even slower to change. Um, so it's been really um, it, it's been there's been a lot of like baby steps and incremental things that we've had to do. Like you know I don't expect them to take giant leaps in terms of of making changes in their process. And I understand why, um, because it is a factory. And by definition, the efficiency of a factory is redundancy and people doing the same thing over and over again. And if that, and for the most part, most factories are not automated. I mean, there are some factories now that have some level of automation, but essentially it's people building these things. So, right. yeah. So you'd have to retrain them to do something different and that slows everything down. Exactly. Even even the, the simplest thing like getting, you know, level four or level five sheetrock instead of light orange peel out of yeah, them. Right. That, it was something that we think is simple. It's not. And I've had yeah. factories who have just said, no, we can't do that. You know, do you have any have do you have any advice for listeners who, who want to pursue this? You know, they've, this is something they've they've been wanting to do and they and they're on the the verge of doing it. Do you have any advice for them as they are starting their process of finding a partner? Yeah, it's tricky because you know it's interesting because I've I've also witnessed from the inside. Um, I've I've had in you know I've had ongoing relationships with some modular manufacturers, and I've heard feedback from them about my colleagues, like I the companies that I worked with. Because trust me, these these companies. Um, and a lot of them have gone out of business. Some of them won't even take a phone call. So like, if you can actually even get a, somebody to call you back that, that they'd even entertain it, which is very rare these days, um, they're getting tons of calls. They're getting, not just from architects, but from builders, developers, et cetera. And um, you know, the, the, the feedback I got most often from the, the manufacturers I was working with was they're like, well, these people cost and they just don't understand the process. Like they want us to do something that's very different, which I guess speaks to what I was saying before going into our research on this was like, 
I just had an intuition that we were going to have to conform to certain things. Like we had to really uh, adjust our expectations uh, and, and, and to do, to create within the constraints of their parameters, to not expect these companies to, to go outside, not even way outside, even slightly outside of how they build. So the, I would say that you have to go in uh, curious. You have to go in, if, if they'll talk to you, the first thing would be rather than saying, I want you to build this, I would say, tell me what you build and how you build and what your, your limitations are. Um, because uh, more often than not, if you just don't, if you don't understand it, you don't understand how they build, what the limitations are, and you just throw those drawings at them, you're, especially today, because these companies are really busy, um, you're going to have a hard time uh, getting a getting a dialogue started with them. So I'm hearing lots of initial research. Do your homework. Understand the process. Understand not only the process of of construction, but how they uh, build modular modularly. And specifically, the company that you're talking to. How do they build? What are their parameters? Mm -hmm. What are their limits? Know that prior to approaching them. So when you have that conversation, they know right away that, oh, this is a person who understands what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, right. And so that's really important. The other thing I heard you say is that the first project you did was essentially a prototype. It was a spec house. You designed it. You, you found a manufacturer, although that manufacturer shifted in the middle of, of uh, the process. Um, but you didn't go have a client right hire you to do this. Right. You did that first one. So if you made mistakes, it was okay. It was a learning process. Right. Uh, it was your own. It was your own money. It was your own process. So um, is that something that you also recommend others do if they want to try to pursue this? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because you just, um, you, you have, you really don't know what that um, process is going to be like with that company that first time. Um, and you know, it can, in the beginning, everybody could be getting along and seem like seeming like they're on the same page, et cetera. But, um, you know, the, the unknowns, um, are unknowns. And, and, and so if you can go that route, which I understand that not everyone can, I, I do recommend it because then once you've gone through that process from conception through, you know, C of O, you're going to, you know, cause it's not just, there's the, there's the design end of it, the engineering part of it, there's coordinating the transportation, there's the issues that come up with the set. I mean, there are, there's a lot of nuances to the process that are different than site construction that you would much rather not have a client see you making mistakes on or not fully grasping or et cetera, uh, and going through it yourself first time. So yeah, absolutely. If you can do that. What does your process look like today? Did you find a manufacturer or, or several manufacturers that you now have a partnership with and, and how is that working today for you? Yeah. So we've, we've worked with, I, I kind of lost count. We probably worked with a dozen different manufacturers from the East coast to the West coast. Um, some of them we've done numerous projects on, but there's also, I mean, one of the other things to mention is that the, what, 
Ma, what Ma has done, Ma has evolved over time. And our, and our modular, the work we've done as modular construction has evolved over time. And it, the first crucial change in the process and our product was moving away from, so after about five years of, of trying to do this kit of parts approach, um, I had a couple of actually two different manufacturers I was working with say to me, listen, if this is really going to work long-term, it'd be much better for all of us. If you guys, if we didn't have to re-engineer these every time you came to us, because with the kit of a part, kit of parts approach, even though like part A may have been used in another model, if it's put together in a different assembly, that assembly is a new assembly. So essentially they were like, we want you to have a base set of floor plans. And so we retooled our website, looked at five years of inquiries and 5,000 emails and went back to the drawing board and said, okay, here's what people are most interested in. And the, the, the plans you see today on our website are like the 12 plans that represent the, 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 the kind of critical mass of where we saw the most interest in these modular housing units. The thing that happened about the same time was some projects presented opportunities for us to evolve the modular construction away from a single family and into uh, a different type, which is the kind of higher density, um, kind of missing middle infill type uh, uh, project, uh, both like townhouses and also uh, mixed use multifamily projects. Um, so we just, just, we just recently finished, we did a 24,000 square foot multi mixed use multifamily project here in Austin. Um, it's called Magnolia, the website 1701magnolia.com, um, where, um, uh, this was all, it was, um, 20 of the 24,000 square feet was modular construction and we, we developed it, designed it and were the general contractor on it. So there's now like two baskets of manufacturers that we deal with because for the most part, the companies that do a single family residential product don't also build the commercial product. Um, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, the players in multifamily are specialized in that. Are all the multifamily projects, uh, development projects for KRDB or are you working with other clients as well? We're working with other clients. Um, and so uh, we have anywhere, for, like uh, we have projects where we were just the design architect. We're, we have a, a project online in the factory right now that's a 10 unit multi small multifamily in Dallas uh, where it was a fee for service thing for the client. There's a GC we found. Um, and then we have projects like we have a, a project in Ventura, California. Um, we've done six or seven projects with the same developer out there where um, we, uh, we're part of the development team, we're the design architect, and then um, we have a little piece of the back end. So it's kind of a JV a little bit. Yep. I mean, a small, a small equity piece because um, they're bigger projects. Um, and then we have stuff that we just develop our, ourselves. So we, it kind of runs the whole spectrum from fee for service only to, you know, develop design build. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. Let's talk ArcViz technology. 
Powered by the near limitless Unreal Engine, our friends at Twinmotion offer a fast and easy way to produce stunning real-time visualizations and immersive experiences for your clients. Twinmotion gives you the tools you need to make faster decisions and relay information to your clients in a way that instantly speaks to them. Breathe life into your scene by changing the season, the weather, the time of day, just by moving a slider. Immersing your clients in a way that they'll love and more importantly, be able to truly picture themselves in. Why not share your design with stakeholders in collaborative reviews and edit your scene together? There's no better way to get buy-in than making your clients feel part of the development process. Right now, they're running an exclusive free trial. Check it out at twinmotion.link slash entrearchitect. That's twinmotion.link slash entrearchitect to get Twinmotion for free. BIM can be important for your next project, but it's not the only thing you need for your next project. That's why it's important that 95% of manufacturers who offer free BIM files on RCAT also offer another type of data or information that your project may need. That means 95% of the products with BIM also have CAD files, are in a specification, in a patented spec wizard, or may have product information to help you make the right selection. So stop going to a site with just BIM and go to rcat.com to get everything you need for your next project for free and without registering. No cost, no credit card, no email, it's free. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. When building a business you're passionate about, it's easy to feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. And if you're doing all the invoicing and accounting on your own, you're probably spending time on work you don't love. FreshBooks is built for business owners like us. It's the all-in-one accounting software that saves entrepreneurs and freelancers up to 11 hours a week. That's 11 hours that you could spend nailing a client pitch, designing your next project, or building your business as an architect. From preparing, sending, and following up on invoices, to tracking and managing expenses, to processing online payments, FreshBooks automates and simplifies all the tough and annoying parts of running your own business. So try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to entrearchitect.com FreshBooks and enter entrearchitect in the how did you hear about us section and get more time back to build the business you love. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBook. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. At Ma Modular, what's the process for your client when they're, or the customer? I'm not sure what you would call them in, in this case. Uh, what's that process like when they, when they approach Ma Modular? Yeah, and that, you know, that's been one of the um, really, probably I would say one of the trickiest things for us has been how to figure out a system of vetting leads. Um, and because tons of people are interested in this, like we get like, there's uh, that literally, like I said, we have an email list. I think it's up to like 6,000 people who have taken the time to go in and fill out a survey and register. Um, but the problem is like, and people are, they're super interested in design. They're interested in modular. It, uh, every one of these people, if they had their druthers would get on the phone with you for two hours. Right. And so, uh, you know, uh, your close ratio is is low single digits. 
And so the, one of the things we've really had to do is to make our website more robust in terms of the information we have on there. And then a first level of filtration being an FAQ and a form the clients fill out um, that then goes to that's automated. And then our office manager will review that. And there might, there's some key questions in there and she'll, there's an automated, as soon as they fill that out, they get an auto response. Someone will get back to you. The first level of filtration is my office manager takes a look at it, sees if it's in a market we work in, sees if it's a project of us, you know, do they have reasonable expectations on budget? I mean, there's a whole, there's a series of maybe a half dozen indicators with that where it goes through that filter. If it passes that through that filter, I then have a dedicated project manager who then will try to, without getting on the phone, vet that even further. For example, one of the key things, if it's not in the Austin market, the client needs to have a general contractor on board. Um, that general contractor does not have to have experience with modular construction, but it has to have a willingness uh, right. to, to get in. So. Um, at this point, we if we tell somebody, listen, we'll, we'll answer your questions via email, but until you have somebody who is is serious and willing to like at least enter a dialogue on the contracting side about how to execute this project, it's a waste of time for us to talk because that you know the the you know the, um, uh, the components in the in the, the equation are the client us as the architect, the manufacturer, and the general contractor. We have to have the general contractor. Um, and so, and then we have a, um, we have a kind of a phased approach where we've kind of con condensed the design process into, we have basic design and detailed design. And then the basic design, once we get through that kind of first series of vetting and they have a GC and we've made sure that they don't have deed restrictions or there are municipalities who uh, restrict modular construction just blanket across the board once we you know make sure that those kind of first initial hurdles can be passed they'll enter into a basic design contract with us where we'll then do that kind of preliminary feasibility where um, we'll vet once they've engaged us we'll vet further vet their land development code the building code uh, look at the site conditions, try to get um, a set crew in the GC out there to make sure we don't have any uh, issues with bringing the mods to the site and setting it, et cetera. Um, putting the building on, in a site plan on their, on their survey, et cetera. So that's just the kind of preliminary uh, feasibility due diligence um, that we get, we get through that. And then if that all looks good, uh, we then enter into the detail design phase, which is where we'll then kind of the deliverables on that will be a, a bank package, a permit package, a biddable package for the GC, you know, something, you know, we've gone through in that phase, um, the client, um, you know, obviously they've picked their plan. They picked their plan before we started basic design, but what they're allowed, there is still some, uh, some customization allowed. So they get to pick, you know, finishes, exterior materials, you know, what type of cabinets, countertops, you know, all the kind of stuff you would, if you go, you went to buy a, you know, a, not a custom home, but say a, you know, a, a builder home where they allow that kind of right. uh, yep. customization. So. 
um, you know, and then and then they they get you know, um, uh, and pro- before that they've had a conversation with the bank. Um, there isn't, there's not special financing required for modular constru- construction. There's some misnomers about that. Um, uh, if you're talking about HUD code housing, and I guess I just take a step back and under the ma- the umbrella of manufactured housing, there's HUD code and modular code. And HUD code is what most honestly, most people think of as factory built housing, which is trailer homes, and they're not put on permanent foundations. They have a whole separate building code for HUD code homes um, and financing mechanisms. Modular code, which is what we build, is is built under the IRC. It's the same building code as site-built construction. The same banks can finance it. The appraisers, when you get an appraisal on a modular uh, home, the only there's one line on there that would indicate it's different than a site built home it'll say modular construction but there's no deductions taken on value for that so um, it's treated it's treated the same um you know so they get their bank approval they get their they get their um uh they get their building permits approved um and then we get in the queue with the manufacturer and then um hopefully the you know, the general contractor is getting the site prepared is at the same time that we're having the, the, the house fabricated in the factory. A typical house, say like a 1500 square foot house will take, depending on the, the, the factory, as little as six weeks and for some factories, 12 weeks in the factory. Um, but uh, completely depends on the factory. And then it's delivered and set by the contractor. And then what, what happens after that process? So, um, you know, the, the all, I shouldn't say all, but almost all modular houses are built on suspended foundations. So either a, a pier foundation or a stem wall foundation or a basement. Um, so the mods are delivered and set and they're either crane set or roll off set. Um, and uh, our goal in the factory is that we are on the interior of that house, it's as complete as possible in the factory. So our typical mods coming out of the factory will have, they'll be painted, they'll have cabinets, countertops, plumbing fixtures, electrical fixtures, sheetrock, um, tape texture float paint up to the marriage lines, recess cans, you know, the whole bit. So even flooring up to the mate line, um, we really want to finish as much in the factory as possible. When we do, like we have a single uh, mod, a small one bedroom, 550 square foot unit, that house, when it's delivered, the interior is complete. We don't have to do anything on the interior. So once the mods are set on the foundation, there's attachment details of the foundation. Um, then you got to bring your MEP trades. Typically the exterior cladding and the roofing aren't done in the factory, although we can do those things. It depends on the design of the house. Um, but the MEP trades come in. The plumbers, like on a modular house, they uh, the the PVC waistlines are just stubbed just below the deck, and you essentially have to build the waste system under the building. That's part of the reason you need that clearance, right? Uh, either a basement or a crawl space. Um, and the reason that's not built in the factory is because the typical way to set these units is you 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 strap them and lift them with a crane, and you couldn't. You couldn't build the PVC C, PVC waste system because it'd be below the the rim joist. So right, yeah, yeah. So all the MEP connections are made. Like for the electrical, the crossover connections are are simple plug connections. 
Um, you just click, click together, snap together connections. Um, we really have moved on the, on the, uh, the HVAC side. We've moved towards um, mini split systems as much as yeah, possible. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Makes we, sense. yeah. So unless it's a big house that really is complicated to, to use a split system, we, we've, we've, uh, we use the ceiling cartridge units. Um, and, and with some of those, you can even have a knockout where if you need to like, let's say you have two bedrooms uh, with a Jack and Jill bath, you could put a cartridge in there and put two short duct runs into the bedrooms, things like that. So um, the MEP trades come in and, and do their work, um, do their hookups, build the service. I mean, theoretically, once you set the building, you could be finished. It really depends. Like every, every project's a little different in terms of like the percentage of, of completion once it's set, you know, if you have to clad it, are you putting stucco on it, you know, et cetera. Um, but if, if you have all your ducks in a row, I mean, I, th I think in three months you could have, or less, you could have that house uh, finished after set. Sounds like a very um, well thought out process, but a complicated process. It's not, it's not simple. It's not, you know, design it. And from your point of view, it's simple for a client, right? They understand that the process is what it is. But from your point of view, there's a lot of steps. Well, and what, and you're touching on a really crucial thing that like people, I'd say the two primary fallacies about modular construction are one, it's less expensive and two, that it's simple. Uh, speaking to the cost part of it, if all else held equal and the specs are the same, the cost of me site building the same design and building it modularly are about the same. And I'll explain that. The, the savings you realize in the plant with the efficiency um, is offset by the cost of then delivering and setting the building. That's not, that's not right. cheap yep. to yep. rent a crane and have a set crew. So it's about the same. Um, uh, so then people will say, well, why would you do it? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, limited on-site construction time, um, you know, being, you know, having people on site for maybe three months instead of a year, uh, if it's a remote location, uh, like we did a house in Marfa, Texas, where it's really difficult to get trades. Um, that's a, you know, a great, uh, example of where, where it works. Um, you know, you're one of the advantages of building in the factory environment is you're in a controlled environment. And yeah. so you're not, you know, exposing the building to the inevitable rain and wind and whatever that you get with site built construction. And then the second thing that the, the, the complexity part of it, I tell people when the, in the first conversations, if they finally get to me after like the two or three or four uh, layers of, of, of vetting, um, the, one of the first things I say to them is doing a modular house is only slightly less complicated than building a site built house. Honestly, it's like you're, you're taking, you know, that, that imagine the budget that's 200 line items long and you're kind of compressing about 50% of it into one vendor, but there's still all of the logistics and, and a few more uh, with doing, with doing the modular construction. And some yeah. of your preparation has to be even better because this is all going to happen in the factory in six weeks. So if you don't have all that stuff figured out, you're going to get calls from the manufacturer saying, well, wait a minute, this, you guys drew this and this doesn't work and da, 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 da. So. Yeah. And it all sounds very familiar. <laughs> a house is a house, right? Exactly. And it, then it gets built the way it gets built and, uh, whether it gets built in a factory, or it gets built out in the field. Um, 
you know, this type of construction is very similar. Yeah. Um, do you have it before we wrap up with the final question? Do you have any final advice for architects who are interested in pursuing this? We talked a lot about that. Um, do you sort of have any final thoughts on that in, in terms of somebody thinking about, you know, pursuing modular construction? Um, I mean, I think we've touched on it a little bit. I mean, I think the you really have to be uh, you've got to manage your expectations um, and and especially in this market because you're going to be hard pressed to even get someone's ear because these companies are so busy, which a, a kind of a related side note that I think is somewhat um, salient to this conversation for 12 or 13 years, people have been saying to me, well, why don't you have your own factory? And I've, I've said, because that that's kind of counter to the whole, like I've, I identified this existing infrastructure and wanted to just tap into it. But after a dozen years of frustration with many factories, I've actually taken the first initial steps to, to start our own factory. And we've identified a building in central Texas and I have a manufacturing partner who we built with in the Northeast, who is one of the best manufacturers I've built with. And he and I have been talking for years and it looks like we're, we are going to start our own factory. Um, and that in large part is due to my frustrations with the many, many things I would say in response to your question about what would you say to people who are entering into this? Prepare to be disappointed, Pre prepare to, hear a lot of no's, be prepared to hear, well, to, 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 to not even get a response uh, from, uh, from these, these companies um, because they're, they're very busy. And, and one of the other things, you know, Ma evolved and as I mentioned, we evolved away and we've not away. I mean, we're still doing single family, but we're doing a lot more of the multifamily. I think my focus for the next 10 years is actually going to be more on smaller and bigger. The ADU market, the, for those who are listening who aren't familiar with the terminology, the accessory dwelling unit, the granny flat. Yeah. I could probably just focus on that for the next 10 years and forget everything else, literally, and probably do really well. Um, so we're focusing small and we're focusing kind of bigger. Um, these, I'm getting uh, every day now, we're getting more inquiries from. Uh, developers and architects interested in these kind of missing middle projects, these infill projects. Yep. And, and again, I think just in central Texas alone, we're in the middle of Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. And then Austin is one of the fastest growing markets in the country. So much of what's going to happen in these markets is not going to be single family. It's going to be duplexes, triplexes, townhouses, small infill projects. So, you know, that's where our focus is going. Uh, again, like I, uh, we've tried, we have several projects on the boards that are in that vein, in that kind of missing middle vein. And, and we've had manufacturers drop away, go out of business. We're calling people and getting pricing. The pricing we're seeing is 40 to 50% higher than it was three years ago. <laughs> oh my uh, goodness. Part of that is uh, material driven. I mean, lumber prices now yeah. are, yeah. are historically higher than they've ever been. But part of it's also just supply and demand. And these right. companies, especially these companies that specialize in this multifamily world, 
there's only a few of them out there that actually build this stuff. There's a lot of renderings out there. If you, if you spend any time researching modular, whether it's single family or multifamily, you know, 95% of what you see is renderings, right? There aren't a whole lot of people who put brick, you know, sticks and bricks on the ground. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of research, understanding the market you're trying to focus on, understanding how these companies work and what they'll be willing to do. Um, you know, and then I would say, you know, in six months, call me because I'll be a manufacturer and I'll, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, Chris is, is if, if they're interested, uh, yeah. are you going to work with other architects? I, I am, but you know, the thing I'm probably going to lead with is a really, really short version of this conversation. Yeah. Where, you know, we're going to say, you know, this is the product we build. This is how we build. And, you know, if you can work within these parameters, we'd be happy uh, to talk to you. Uh, but, you know, the thing that I'm excited about is not only to like uh, kind of work around all these problems and headaches I've had on a baseline level with these companies, but the opportunity to build the highest performance buildings coming out of a factory. Like yeah, that's super really, exciting. That's really exciting to me. And we've been talking we've had some opportunities recently where we've got some calls from some companies who, who, uh, who, who dwell in the world of sustainability and want to work with us. And the idea that we can not only do these factory built houses, uh, but to create, high performance buildings um, and to really focus on that is, uh, is, is really is, you know, honestly, I think that's what put me over the finish line with like the mental uh, block of like, do you really want to get into the manufacturing business? It's like, yeah, you know, because I just can't, I can't get these companies to do, to really do what I, what I want to do. So I guess like everything else, I've most everything else I've done, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to, <laughs> it's it sounds I mean from from hearing your origin story from the very beginning all the way through you know developing the development architecture firm uh in to through you know launching Ma modular and just hearing this story it sounds like the next step in your evolution it's like it's where you should be uh, it's exciting to hear that story and and I appreciate you for sharing it it's very inspiring it's also very enlightening. I think this is an episode that that you and I can both send people to when they're thinking about doing this. Go listen to this episode, uh, hear what Chris is saying because it's it's important to understand the complexities of this. Uh, that it's not as simple as it sounds. Um, and so I appreciate you for for sharing all of that and being so transparent. What would you say is one thing that an architect should do right now today to build a better business for tomorrow? the better business for tomorrow. I mean, I think really, um, I think the thing that we've, I've discovered in retrospect and kind of looking at our, at our work is to really identify your niche and figure out what it is you want to specialize in and, and be uh, proactive about, about um, mapping a, a kind of a trajectory and be intentional, intentional about uh, uh, building a, a business plan around that. I mean, I don't know if we talked about the e-myth in our first conversation, the entrepreneurial myth. I'm not sure if we spoke about it, but I've spoken about it many times. It's one of my favorite books and I've given that book away probably 20 times. So yeah, and, totally and I'm, about, I'm about to, vi I'm about to, for the third time, I think in 10 or 12 years to revisit the exercise he goes through at the end of the yeah. book. 
you really map your, cause it's great to revisit. Yeah. Like when you, when you to go back and look at what you recorded five yep. or 10 years ago and to look at what you accomplished that you set out to do and what you didn't and why, and are you still interested in that? And so like really kind of being intentional and, 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 and proactive about kind of mapping that out and, and revisiting that and, um, and, and finding that, that niche and, and where you want to be, um, I, I would say is, is the, is the best advice I could give anybody who's, who's entertaining, um, you know, uh, going into any kind of version of architecture that's be beyond the kind of conventional, you know, route to practice. So. Yeah. Great advice. Uh, the E-Myth Revisited as a book that I, like I said, I've given it away many times, but I, I too, uh, have read it multiple times. Uh, every few years I pick it up and reread it because it, it, it's amazing. Like you said, every time you read it, it's a different book because you're in a different place in your business and yeah. you, you take more away from it and you see the progress you've made and it inspires you again and motivates you again. And so it is something that, uh, you should read over and over again. Uh, his name is Chris Krager. The website for the development company is krdb.com, krdb.com. Uh, Ma Modular is at Ma Modular, M-A-Modular.com. Uh, you can find them both on Facebook, so you can go find KRDB and Ma Modular on Facebook. We'll have links to everything on the show notes for this. Chris, this has been fantastic. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you for, for sharing so much of the behind the scenes of what you're doing. Uh, so others can understand what you're doing and how it's done. Uh, I appreciate you for sharing that and for sharing your knowledge here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how you could help grow Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, FreshBooks, RCAT, and Twinmotion for their support of this episode. Links to all our sponsors and all our resources that we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. That's you. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-media.com. Go there now. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources for architects, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and simple systems. Our new business system program developed for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Yep, they are there, they are too. Entree Architect is there for you. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? 
Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.